Okay, so we are at fulfillment part three. There is a part four. Yes, you can hear me? Turn it up a little bit. I'm going to move the mic closer so you can hear me. Is that a bit better? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so we're on fulfillment part three, uh, and this is, we're, we're looking at the, the speech of Stephen, and what he does, he talks about the uh, God's people who have come, who have brought the message of God, who have brought the plan of God, fulfilled it in, uh, in maybe not as in the ways that God would want them to, but he still has worked through them uh, to bring about his plan regardless. Um, so we're now at the stage where we're looking at Moses today, uh, and this is quite a long piece of scripture that we're looking at. Um, I'm going to have to turn the lights on, don't worry. Um, and we're, we're, what we're looking at today, really, to uh, what this message, I suppose, for us, and in general, what I see in this, is this stumbling block of religious uh, idolatry. Uh, and this isn't the idolatry of worldly things we might think of. Um, maybe we're, we're hooked on television or something like that. I'm not, I'm not talking about those things, but uh, worldly things um, are, are bad enough. But it's a more deceptive ideology, uh, sorry, idolatry rather. Uh, it's one that can be a worship of religiousness uh, instead of the right worship of God unhindered by religion. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been asked a question about whether you are, are you religious? Have you been asked that question before? I've been asked it a few times. Are you religious? Um, and I like to say, and this is probably a quite a common answer, no, I'm not religious. I'm not religious. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus, uh, but I'm not religious. Uh, the sense that uh, what we know that the context by which people are asking is this sort of set religion of doing things uh, uh, that we, we do. We are Christians because we, we do things religiously. Uh, we come to church religiously, and that defines our Christianity, and yet it does not. It does not define our Christianity to turn up to a building on a Sunday. Uh, but our hearts uh, are measured by God to see whether how, how much we're, we're involved in his plan, how much we want to invest ourselves in his, uh, in his mission. So to help us see the dangers of placing the practice of religion above the practice of living for God first, we need to learn that God is only pleased by the work of our hands when we allow God to establish the work of our hands. It's a very sp specific uh, thing to look at. Uh, it's great to work for God, but it's not that we earn our salvation through the work of our hands. It is that God gives us the work to do, and we do it out of the joy of doing it. Then we need to fully understand that religion can lead us to confining God, to boxing God, uh, at least in our own heads, that is, uh, to one particular place. And it could even be church. We could confine God to this place in our minds. And therefore, when we leave this place, we are acting differently to when we are in the building. We need to be careful not to do that. So we need to see how that can mislead us into having a, a part-time relationship with an all-knowing, all-seeing God. And then we'll see how Jesus is the bondage breaker. Uh, the new temple for those that put their faith and trust in him. Okay, long verses, Acts 7, 17 to 46. Bear with me, I may have to take water uh, whilst I read it. It's a long set of verses, uh, hopefully no complicated words. Uh, As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously 
with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's, uh, placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, uh, years old he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the men who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in a desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, trembled with fear and did not dare to look then the lord said to him take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground i've indeed seen the oppression of my people in egypt i've heard their groaning and have come down to set them free now come i will send you back to egypt this is the same moses they have rejected with the words who made you ruler and judge he sent he was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by god himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush he led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods, who will go before us. As for this fellow, Moses, who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was a the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in their own hands, uh, what their own hands made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of prophets. Did, did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant of the law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, uh, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land till the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked him what he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. There's actually more to that. And I haven't added it on. I'm just going to see if it's here. Okay, I'm going to read the rest out because it isn't on here. It says, 40, verse 48, this is, um, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? 
Or will my test, uh, will, will my resting place be? Where will my resting place be? Verse 50, has not my hand made all these things? The reason for that is because I decided close to the last minute that we needed to add the verses on at the end because it needs to give a, better, a, a wider context of the why this was going on. And then next week we're looking at Stephen's application of his speech, what, why he's there, what is he, why is he saying all this? And we'll see what he then says to the Sanhedrin next week. But in this, we're going to look at Moses. What's, what's the purpose of what he's saying here? When, when we get to this part of the recount of history of God's people, we are now at the main drive of Stephen's speech. Uh, most of the speech is dedicated to the account of Moses uh, because I think the main point he wants to bring out here is the pattern of rejection uh, that has been evident in Abraham, Joseph, and now Moses. Again, what he's trying to show in his speech is examples of a particular behavior that he wants to show is also evident when they rejected the cornerstone Jesus. So when they chose to reject certain people of God, lo and behold, they'll be the very ones that God had raised up to be their leader for that time. The ones they rejected tended to be the ones that God sent. And we know that they would tend to accept the ones that God did not send. They were easily deceived at times uh, by false prophets. If you read your Bible, you will know where that is. Um, that's not a judgment on you, by the way. <laughs> Encouragement. Read your Bible. It's, it's really, it's great to read. It's fantastic. But his mother uh, would have to let him go. Uh, this is Moses. His mother, he, sorry, Moses is no ordinary child. He's, he's, he's no ordinary child. He is in God's favour. Uh, and that was that he had this particular purpose and mission to be part of the rescue of God's people. His mother would have to let him go because of the order of Pharaoh to kill Hebrew boys, but in doing so, he was found by Pharaoh's daughter and was nursed by the mother. What's particularly interesting and timely is that God put Moses with the Egyptians and was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians as was powerful in speech and action. This is strictly not a good thing. Uh, when you read go back to the account of Moses and you read this part, uh, it sounds like what Stephen, because Stephen says here, this is what he, he makes of it, this is what he says, uh, that he was powerful in speech. But actually there's a sense that he kind of, he was so wrapped up in Egyptian wisdom, as it were, that he, he makes this mistake of going ahead of God, of almost trying to make things happen before God wants them to happen. And we see that in the two instances where he tries to break up the fight with the Israelites, the two Israelite brothers. Uh, and then we see that when he kills the Egyptian. Uh, and then uh, they, they discover him. What Stephen doesn't say here is that they discover, he, dis he, he discovers that they know that he killed an Egyptian. And he has to run away to Midian. That's the sort of background to that story. So it's not particularly a good thing. And what we find is that this wisdom... An action was not going to serve him well. Uh, all the same, God would still use him for the purpose of leading his people out of slavery. And so when he gets older, he returns to his own people. And what we find are the two instances where Moses intervenes for the purpose of God's people, or what he thinks is, is the purpose that he needs to do, uh, either to protect or to bring peace. Uh, motives are sort of right, but we, we get a sense that it's probably he's probably jumped the gun a bit. Uh, and, and we get this uh, sense that he's, the fact that he has to be almost sent away, he has to go away because he's been discovered, uh, that's what we find, 
it is a sense that maybe he's jumped ahead of the, uh, of the game a bit, a bit ahead of the mission that God wants or has put him on. Moses sees one of his own people being mistreated by an Egyptian, so goes to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. And Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they didn't. They said they, they don't, they don't recognize. That's not, that's not what, that's not what they don't, they don't see that at all. And it's on purpose. And now when you read this, what you see is that Moses killed an Egyptian and buried him in the sand to protect uh, his own from mistreatment. And from this, we are to understand that God's people should have realized that Moses was there to rescue them. But what was happening is that Moses tried to accelerate, tried to get ahead of the plan in his own wisdom the way by which God would use him. Moses tried to make himself Israel's deliverer in a way that made sense to him, to the way of man, almost like a hero stepping in. Look at this guy, he's coming in and he's going to rescue you. And he thought, if I do this, they're going to follow me. I'm going to kill this Egyptian, I'm going to break up this fight. I'm the man. I'm God's man. I'm come to do this. I'm going to do it now. God had other plans. But we know if we read the life of Moses, it's kind of littered with mistakes, right? Moses makes some, a very bad, terrible mistake towards the end of his life, which means he doesn't get into the promised land. His character, this sense of this character, he, he kind of rushes in a bit. He kind of has these times of, of getting ahead of God. Even when there's a, and I can't remember which, which part it's in, it completely escapes me now, where God wants to wipe out some of almost all of uh, his of God's people, the Israelites, because they're just they're worshiping other gods. Um, God says he's going to do it. Moses then negotiates with God or tries to. Let's call it he tries to negotiate. He thinks he's negotiating with God. And actually, when Moses comes back down from the mountain to the people and he sees what they're doing with the golden calf, he takes a position that God had already taken, which is how could you do this? He's angry. He is, he is infuriated by what these people are doing. Again, this sense that Moses has always had this sort of characteristic where he, he jumps ahead a bit. He thinks he knows what is the right thing to do. He thinks he knows all the time what God will want. So we looked at, when we looked at God using the actions of others last week to fulfill his plan, we can see that God will work even through the ill thought through actions of those he's chosen to do his very work. So last week we looked at the actions of others be it evil or not, that God will work through them to bring about his plan. There's a sort of example here where Moses is being used, even though his actions aren't full uh, of, of good ways, of, of good methods, God's still going to use them to bring about what he wants. But there are two reasons why I believe Stephen brings this up. First and foremost is to make sure that even as we are told about a chosen man of God to carry out God's plans, it still needs to be clear that even this person would be nothing in comparison to Jesus. Moses was, was not Jesus. Yes, there is a foreshadowing to a degree within it. And if you read some commentaries, it talks about how Moses might be the foreshadowing in terms of the wilderness and things like that. And in his earlier life, when he's, he, he has to run away to Midian, there is some elements in that, but remember, Moses is a man. Moses is not Jesus. Moses is, it, there's not a 100% reflection in it. There is a foreshadowing of it. There is, there is what is to come that we see in Jesus. Secondly, as we see the second instance of Moses trying to break up a fight between two of his people, find that 
For Moses, he would not lead God's people by way of man's plans, ideas, or even under his own strength. Verse 27 of our reading, 27 to 29, sorry, says, But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Moses could not deliver when he lived in palaces or even with all the Egyptian wisdom and knowledge. He had to be given a dose of reality. A dose of reality away from the palace into a humble place before he could deliver God's people. He had to learn humility. So the reason for Stephen telling the Sanhedrin this was to emphasize again a sense of God's presence. God's presence and working even if it didn't make sense to man. Much of God's working doesn't make sense to us, does it? Much of what God doesn't do from our perception doesn't make sense. And we struggle with that. We struggle because we want things, certain things to happen and we think it's what God wants and it might well be what God wants. But timing is always God's prerogative. It's always down to him when that will be delivered or not. And so we submit ourselves to God who decides, who is the authority in this world, in this universe. Proverbs 16 verses 1 to 3 says, To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. So whilst Moses he is away, he's, he's no longer in the luxury of the Egyptians. But now Moses finally had an opportunity to be this servant. And he did a good job. You know, he, he, he was being trained by God all the time. Working hard to help water the flocks of Jephro's daughters. In the time that Moses was living and working in Midian, uh, we should know that this isn't a time of waiting. This isn't a time of him waiting and just sitting around or just having a family life. God is doing stuff. For 40 more years, God is doing stuff. Moses needed to learn and be trained by God in how to be a leader with the important grounding of humility and contentment in his lesser status and God's greater status. God's plan of fulfillment is in his hands. The world will wait for the creator God to progress and ultimately complete his plans. We learned last week that, the, the, that God submits the world to frustration of sin so that we will know the glory of God, so we will know the grace and mercy that he has given through Christ Jesus. God wanted to show Moses that the works of his own hands would only come to fruit if it was directed toward and serve God under God's plans. Psalm 90 verse 17 says, May the favor of the Lord and God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So now that Moses has had 40 years of training, he's ready to be sent back by God. And when we read this account, when you go back and, and read this account uh, about Moses, um, it starts off okay with the questions. He asks questions about, well, uh, what do I do when I get there? Who do I say sent me? 
And then it kind of turns in, when, when God's got all the answers, because he's got all the answers, he lays out this, this very detailed plan to Moses. At the end, Moses says, I think there's someone better to send than me. I'm just this like little guy. I don't know how to speak properly. I can't, I, can't, I just can't put words together. I, you know, I'm just not very good. I'm not a very good presenter or rater. I'm, I'm just not, you know, I think there's someone better than me to do that. So he's a little hesitant. There's still, there's still blunt edges, as it were, sharp, maybe sharp edges of Moses' character that, that maybe haven't gone. And that, that is the case for us today. We won't be completely 100% God-focused, God uh, in obedience to him right now. But yes, certainly when we meet him, we will. So there's always going to be elements of character. And we see this in Moses. We see it when he... Uh, in the wilderness when he is rescuing God's people. Now, what's a key moment here is, uh, is Stephen's highlighting what he wants the, the reader, the listener, the Sanhedrin, uh, to understand in relation to his speech. Stephen says, <coughs> excuse me, uh, in Acts 7, 31 to 32, when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. Uh, and this is talking about Moses. As he went over to get a close look, he heard the Lord say, I'm the God of your father's uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Moses in both amazement and fear. I think that's progress. After 40, 40 years, Moses is learning about the, the, the reverence of God, the awesomeness of God. Amazement and fear. We should expect that the training and the years in Midian have had significant effect on Moses in relation to how he accepts leading from God. We know that Moses is rightfully careful about how he's going to lead God's people out of slavery. Instead of just packing up and going, right, I've got a plan. I'm just going to go and beat up an Egyptian. I'm going to break up some fights and they're going to... No, he doesn't do that this time. Exodus 3 verses 11 to 12. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I'll be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it, that it is I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. For the rest of Exodus uh, 3 and 4, we see Moses ask more questions. He then listens to this precise plan that God has for the people to be rescued. But God still has to contend with Moses as he contends with us every day. God, God, I imagine, does get angry. That's okay, it's righteous anger, remember. It's not the anger that me or you experience with, with maybe people that we know or, or people that we encounter. This is righteous anger. God has a right, is rightful to be angry. So he still has to contend with Moses as Moses starts to tell God how God should send someone else says that God's anger burned against Moses. And now maybe contentment has had too much of an effect on Moses. Maybe living a life, a family life of 40 years in, in, in effectively a wilderness has probably had some negative effect on him. And they starts to find these excuses. But I have a, I have a hope about this. That, uh, and we know this because we read the account of how Moses then rescues God's people. That, that he still wants to serve God. 
there's a fleshiness in him that doesn't want to step up and to serve God in the mission that God has for him. And that, I, th I think we can allow a little bit of that. God is graceful in allowing Moses, even though God's angry, to he, God still even speaks to Moses, even answers Moses, is grace and mercy. But Moses still probably thinks that he has to have a special human ability or skill to do the work of God. But this is not so. 1 Corinthians verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. As a result of all this, and why Stephen mentioned this, is to build to his next statement. This is where the next part of where Stephen says, This is the same Moses that rejected with words. Who made you ruler? Who made who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God Himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. One more verse. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for forty years in the wilderness. Stephen is really. I mean, if you've read the story of Moses, this is an extreme summary of Moses' life. I mean, it is so compressed. Uh, but he has to get the point across quickly and, and get the important points across to them so they understand where he's going uh, or at least see what he's trying to say. But this is the same Moses that was earlier rejected by God's people. And I think this is to highlight a number of things, that it was not a man-made idea that Moses would deem himself the leader for God's people, but that God would use such a man, such a flawed man, such a man with, with so many character flaws to bring about part of God's plan, specifically to lead his people to freedom. Grace and mercy. And so I think Stephen is making an important point about the issue of God's people measuring people by their own standard and ability to be God's prophets. They look at Jesus when he turns up, they go, this isn't God, he is a blasphemer. How can this man, from the place where he came from, claim to be God. They're just seeing the man. The same man who saw not only himself as incapable by his own standard, but that you saw as incapable by your own standard. Let me say that again. I read this and sometimes I think, what was I thinking there when I wrote this? Let me say this again. Moses is the man who led God's people out of the wilderness. He is the man who is totally incapable of doing that under his own strength. People perceive Jesus as incapable. They looked at him and they thought, he is incapable. This man is not from God. He is not God. He cannot save us. But just as God sent Moses, God sent Jesus. Stephen tells them that Moses himself speaks of the prophets to come, who will be from their own. Stephen tells them that God's people who told, uh, were told then that one is coming to be a prophet, the one in the form of Jesus. Moses speaks of the prophets to come. The warning from all that time ago. And yet that doesn't seem to be enough. 
Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19. <coughs> Excuse me. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord of your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words into his mouth. He will tell them everything I commanded him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. This is a warning. God will call to account those who do not listen to the prophet that speaks in God's name. Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, promised a prophet to come, a prophet that would first be like him, that is like Moses, like Moses. This prophet would be from the midst of Israel. This not only meant that he would be an Israelite, but that he would be a man of the people. He would be one of them. Like Moses, this prophet would command the attention of the nation. This means both that Israel should listen to this prophet and that they would listen to this prophet. Like Moses, this prophet would be a mediator, representing God to the people and representing the people before God. Like Moses, this prophet's message would only be rejected at a great penalty. Stephen tells them that they reject Moses uh, and instead worship something of their own creation, the golden calf. It's very important that he makes this point. Again, trying to drive home the point that every time this happens, they reject the people that God sends. This would be the moment that God would hand his people over to their worship of things. They reject the true worship of God and want idols made with their own hands. God gives them up to the reality behind all idols, namely the demons. One of the accusations uh, against Stephen was that he had blasphemed the temple. But it wasn't that Stephen spoke against the temple, but against the way Israel worshipped the temple of God instead of God of the temple. Just as Israel worshipped the calf in the wilderness, so now they were worshipping the work of their own hands. Back to our verses, 44 to 46. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant of the law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them uh, when they took the land from the nations. God drove out before them. Uh, it remained in the land until the time of David who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Why does Stephen suddenly mention this? The, the purpose behind this and why Stephen is mentioning this is because he's pointing out that even though they had the presence of the temple or the tabernacle, it never stopped them rejecting God and his prophets. Even though they had something right there in front of them that represented God, they still went against him. They still worshipped false idols. He's trying to show them that their temple idolatry is the stumbling block by which they will still not accept Jesus today. 
just as they rejected the prophets then. And we need to be careful because this practice of confining God to a place is still done today. We still have a traditional sense of church at times where it's the only place we can meet God. But we know in Jesus that that's not the case anymore. Jesus is the temple. And now we come to Jesus and he is the place where we worship. That doesn't mean Jesus is not only here. He is everywhere. He is God. No longer will you need to look up the opening times of your local church, but you can sit at home and say, Lord, I want to be with you right now. I want to worship you. And we can. The major difference that Stephen is pointing out is that the temples were tradition. They were things that they were holding on to and making into idols. The problem with placing God in certain places only is that we fall into the trap of living as if God is absent from the rest of our lives. We can put on our Sunday best, but, the, but we run the risk of living outside of God's purposes the rest of the time. She agrees. The people that Stephen was addressing had all the appearance of good religious people. But in their hearts, that religion had formed into a self-made, self-worshipping religion. God says uh, they worship the work of their own hands. Something that we were very aware of in this church as we, we look to change the buildings and, and, and make them and improve them. And this, this isn't going to make it for us in heaven. This building is not going to do it for us in heaven. It isn't going to get us into with God. It's not going to get into his favor. What we do in the building as God's people, that matters. But for God's people, it would consume them to the point that they could not see the wood or the trees. They couldn't see the God man that stood right in front of them and told them that he was the fulfillment of the prophecy. Their religion was their bondage. And although Jesus came to free them from it, they did not want to let it go. John 2 verse 19 says, On the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Verse 19, verse 1 and 19. Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. First verse, just to give you the context of where he is. Uh, and then he says, uh, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. What does that mean? Jesus didn't mean that a new temple, as they thought, would be built in three days by the work of hands, but that after three days, he would be the new place where everyone would meet God. Jesus would be the temple. Matthew 12, verse 6 says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here, speaking of himself. And Stephen's audience could not accept was uh, what they couldn't accept was that their practices of the work of their hands were no longer relevant on their own. They weren't the things that were going to uh, earn them grace and favor and merit from God. It would not glorify God or bring them to him. Stephen told them their unbelief would be the undoing of them, and history has told them so. The reason why Stephen goes through this history is to tell them the lessons have already been learned they have been run already jesus is the final 
piece of the jigsaw. He is the perfect lamb come to pay for sin. This is it. John 4, 21 to 23. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. There are no more prophets. Nothing more to come except the return of Jesus. And on that day, it will be final. There will be no more chances, no more excuses, no more religion, just time to face Jesus. So before then, I think we need to make every effort to help people know that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And the good news is there's still time. John 6, verse 37. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Simple message. And yet we still reject it in this world. A free gift of grace, a free gift of salvation. But we're not here to judge those. That's God's, that's, that's, uh, God's, God, God's job. Is that right? We're here to bring salvation. We're here to bring the message and hope of Jesus Christ. The new temple. The one that cannot be destroyed. So let's make every effort to get people to know Jesus. Let's pray and then we'll worship. Lord, we just want to thank you that you are so merciful and so gracious. We want to acknowledge today that you are the merciful, gracious God who sent his son to be a substitute for the price of sin that we could never pay. And Lord, we want to lift up our, our idols to you, of course, but Lord, we want to lift up our, our so-called religious idols, Lord, anything that we're harboring that we may not even know about, Lord. What, what are we holding on to that's, that's earthly, that's worldly? What are we holding on to that's given us a false comfort? Lord, we just want to pray that you reveal in our hearts that uh, we can come every time without fail, no queuing. We can come to Jesus every single time. There's no registration form to fill out. There's, There's nothing else to do except to accept you as our Lord and Saviour. And Lord, we do that because we don't want to diminish what you've done on the cross. So Lord, we do want to pray for those who are, and ourselves, each other, who may be trapped to some degree or another in some sort of religious idolatry. What are we, 
uh, maybe not letting go of, Lord, but we pray for others who maybe treat church like it's an event, like the, the only events during the year, the Christmas and the Easter and the... Oh, Lord, there's so much more to, to, to have in a relationship with you than the occasional glimpses of a, a church service, a church event. Lord, we want to pray that your Holy Spirit goes ahead, convicts and changes people from their destination of hell to the destination of heaven. We want them to be saved, Lord. We want them to come to know you. We want our family and friends to know you. So, Lord, give us patience. Give us reassurance that you have everything under your control, that your plans are all that matter. And Lord, I just pray you help us to fulfill them, carry them out as you have us for this time whilst we are gathered in this church as a congregation, as a people of God. Lord, that you will help us to fulfill what you have for this place, for this community, for each other. Lord, we ask these things in your holy, precious name. Amen.